0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Good day, church. Um, this morning's scripture reading is from Acts 16, 16 through 24. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ.
0: Christ. Thank you, Esther. Good morning, everyone. My name is Paul Lim. I uh, have been serving here since 2016 as a scholar in residence. Uh, It's been a great delight to do that. So I want to start with uh, something hopefully pretty interesting. Uh, So I got back. I was away for a work trip for a few days uh, to the West Coast in L.A. And time has changed, I mean, literally, uh, this morning, spring forward. So I got this text message from our Pastor Scott Sauls. Hey, Paul, just making sure you remember Daylight Savings. Go time for the 8.30 service right now. Um, I I got here at 8.31, and I was about to text him and say, Oh, shoot, I forgot. I'm still in L.A. time. Could you start the sermon, and I'll finish it for you. (laughs) They would have probably given him a hard text. I said, No, I better just take I'm here, man. Let's go. So um, so I did preach the first service, the entire sermon, and I'll do this one entirely as well. So by God's grace, if it is okay with you, let's pray together, and we'll get going. Gracious God, we thank you for your infallible and inerrant word the word that is going out from yourself and does not return void. So may you accomplish that purpose for which these words are sent. May you do that work for your glory and for our deep joy. In your name we prayed. amen, amen. So when I got an email from Nate Tasker about the title of the sermon for today, I chuckled and said to myself, great. What a provocative and profound title for a sermon. You know what that is for today? It says, when God goes to prison. I think that's a fantastic, perhaps the best sermon title I've had to work with in my entire preaching journey, when God goes to prison. And I'll tell you why that is. I'm, I'm being 100% serious. It's because, again, like many sermon assignments I'm given here at Christ Press, I'm sort of, throw, it. Uh, it uh, this throws a hard slider or curveball if you want to use a baseball analogy, but this one I'm ready to hit, right? So um, the other uh, part of my vocational calling is I also teach, in addition to being here at Christ I work at Vanderbilt uh, University as a professor. And one of the things that I do uh, delightfully every four three or four semesters is to teach at a uh, prison. I teach at the uh, Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. And this semester, it is on death row. The class is called God and Human Suffering in Christian Traditions. And it is one with 14 Vanderbilt students who travel to River Van Maximum Security Prison each Monday afternoon with me to to engage in a theological conversation with 12 death row inmates. So the class is God and Human Suffering, and we're inside Unit 2, which is death row, and talking about that and how God is experienced and believed and understood in our midst, even in that context as well. So, one of the textbooks that we use for that class is called um, is by Brian Stevenson, the founder of EJI Equal Justice Initiative, and it's a book called Just Mercy: A Story of Justice and Redemption. Brian Steven uh, Stevenson is not only the founder of EJI, but also a very, very serious Christian who believes and worships the God of mercy and justice, both justice and mercy. For without both of them, all of us will be lost, he says, and separated, and found guilty at the divine court of justice. This is what he says in one of the passages, moving passages in the book. He says, we are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. We have a choice to make. We can embrace our humanness, which means embracing our broken natures and the compassion that remains our best hope for healing. Or we can deny our brokenness, forswear compassion, and as a result, deny our own humanity. So, before we delve into this provocative and profoundly powerful title of today's sermon, When God Goes to Prison, let's take a look around the text that we have just read today. So, at one level, This story that we read from Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 24 is a strange one, isn't it? If you're paying attention to it, I'm sure you've noticed it is slightly strange to say the least. We read of the following points. One, we encounter a female slave uh, who made her owners a lot of money by fortune telling. There are a number of issues that are unsettling somewhat for many of us. First of all, for many modern sensibilities, The word slavery raises our moral antenna and unsettles a bit, to say the least. Furthermore, we hear that she had a spirit by which she predicted the future, as the Bible says. Among other things, it seems that we might have to get off of our reformed flatland and at least recognize that this is not a figure of speech. It happened that she was doing this uh, fortune telling or future telling and then was gaining a lot of money for her owners, and perhaps even wrestle with the fact that things that go beyond our grasp can and do happen. Prediction of future, we read about that right here. But here also in our story, if she was not saying any such thing. She wasn't talking about the future event. She was actually, in fact, revealing the true identity of the Most High God. She was saying that this is, you know who these people are? She was saying that these are the servants of the Most High God, and they're here to show us the way of salvation. So this God above all other gods, this God has sent Paul and Silas to tell the people about the way to be saved. She kept this up, as it says, for several days. I don't know if you noticed that, and I don't. did you also see that Paul was quite irritated by it? So uh, he basically told her, her spirit inside, get out of it and do not bother me anymore. And then that happened, and when I read this text, I see the confirmation and illustration of the fact that God can use hotheads like Paul. Uh, he was really, really perturbed by it. He said, get out of this thing, and then that's what happened. That truly and really comforts and encourages me. In conservative circles, uh, where we are in many ways, we tend to exalt people's moral, good, moral goodness, and it's hard to see that they were ever in need of any need of redemption before. It is almost as if it was their ethical achievements and sanctity that earned them a special place in heaven. Paul might have been, uh, might have issued murderous threats against the people of God before he met the resurrected Lord en route to Damascus, but after that he was all right. That's not at all what Paul himself says. Actually, he says, I am, not I was, the chief of sinners. Here is Paul being hot-headed, greatly annoyed at something and someone and that he gets mad at a fortune-telling young woman and God uses Paul and Silas to accomplish God's own purposes. In progressive circles, we tend to expose people's failings and cancel them to such an extent that it requires nothing but perfection for them, ironically, to be acceptable to human kind of tribunal or divine tribunal. In other words, whether from the conservative or progressive angles, neither of these views brings us to the gospel. Here Paul is clearly irritated and yet does the work of God. Here's another important side note uh, that warrants a closer look. The owners of the fortune-telling young woman identified Paul and Silas as Jews. I don't know if you saw that in the text. It is either that they did not see any distinction between Jews and Christians, Maybe that is what it was. Or maybe in fact, we can perhaps see clearly their anti-Semitic rhetoric because within the first century Roman context, Judaism and the Jewish communities were often marginalized or maligned. So maybe that's what it is. And then they actually, the owners of the, the fortune telling young woman, they differentiate themselves from Paul and Silas, the Jews, because they were saying we are Romans and we have our Roman cultural values and norms. And they brought matters of legality as well. They said this is unlawful and unnatural for the Roman ways to be embracing of the Jewish ways or the Christian ways. There is very interesting kind of commentary there about the tension between Rome and first century uh, Christianity as well. As I was thinking about this text, and I've been meditating on my journey as an educator for the last 23 years, starting in England and Boston and then here in Nashville, it occurred to me that we're not living in a post-Christian America. People say, yeah, we're living in a post-Christian America. Perhaps for some it is, but in my experience, when I began teaching, In 1999, there were plenty of people who, even though they were not Christians, but they would understand something about Christianity, something about the uh, the cultural plausibility structure of the Western civilization and and its proximity to and relationship with Christianity. But now in 2022, I feel in many ways that I'm teaching to a group of students or living in a context that is predominantly pre-Christian, pre-Christian before the teaching and advent of Christianity. Many students have actually never encountered a living God in Jesus about whom This fortune-telling servant girl was yelling. So just as the textual and historical horizon of first century Roman world presented Paul and Silas an exciting opportunity for a radical discipleship, So it is with us today in 2022. It is a great opportunity rather than an obstacle. It is an opportunity rather than being shying away and shrinking away. It presents us here in Nashville as Nashville is changing tremendously each and every year. I was in LA and then many were saying, yeah, you're in Nashville. A lot of people from Southern California are moving to Tennessee. And so that was a very interesting kind of point that, that I heard, that we, it presents us here at Christ Press in Nashville, Tennessee, a great opportunity for radical discipleship. So we need to make up our minds. Will this be your God? So let's also examine what happened to these servants of the Most High God before we delve, as we delve into t- uh, today's sermon. So this slave, young, young slave uh, woman was going around following Paul and Silas saying, hey, this is a ser- these are the servants of the Most High God. They are here to show us the way to be saved. And as they did so, and then the spirit left, of this, uh, left this young woman, and then the owners got really irritated themselves. They basically, then what happened? Paul and Silas were stripped, beaten, and severely flogged. They were hurled into the prison, and not only any kind of prison, but also in the inner cell, and their feet were locked into stocks. Fairly radical turn of events, isn't it? If you're the most high God, and if you're able to do whatever you want, would you send your servants who are here to uh, to tell others about the way to be saved? Would you make sure that they get flogged and beaten and incarcerated? Kind of ironic. So then, we come to today's sermon title, When God goes to prison. I have three quick points as a spring break special, so it won't be too long. So three quick points are, how does God go to prison? Second point will be, why does God go to prison? And third point will be, where can I meet this God who goes to prison? How does God go to prison? Why does God go to prison? And where? How, why, and where? So are you ready for the first point? How does God go to prison? To me, this is a really, really a fascinating observation. I think the burden for me as a preacher this morning is to connect the title and the text in a a hopefully in a helpful fashion so that we will walk away from this sanctuary or this place saying, wow, what an awesome God we follow and love and worship. And to do so, let's go to uh, the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3. Many of us, I think, are familiar, or some of us are familiar with the fact that Exodus chapter 3 is a very pivotal text in the entire book of Exodus because there, Moses encounters the living God. And right before that, right around Exodus chapter 3, is the story of Israel's captivity and slavery for about four centuries. And Moses is brought to the burning bush, as you remember the story. And then he sees this bush that is burning, but is not burnt up. So he gets obviously quite curious, and he goes, let me go check it out over there. And as he gets near the burning bush, what does he hear? He says, Moses, Moses, do not come any closer because you're standing on the holy ground. And also, furthermore, why don't you take off your sandal? Because it is holy sight. And then God speaks to Moses. God speaks to Moses in a very, very powerful and poignant way that actually has a very important revelation of God's identity. God says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there is a kind of self-disclosure. I am who I am, and not only I am who I am, but also I am the God of your, your forebears." Furthermore, we hear these words, I have seen the misery of my people. God says, I see it. Moreover, God says, I've heard them crying out. Not only does God see, not only does God hear, not only is God the self-referential one, but moreover, he says, I am concerned about their suffering. So God sees, God hears, God defines reality, God is concerned. And then you know what he says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8? He says, as a result, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Did you hear that? It says, not only so I, I see, I hear, I am concerned, so the consequential reality that is about to happen is, I have come down. I am in my you know, heavenly throne or whatever it is, you may call it, but I have come down here to be with you right here, right now. So, in other words, God's response to the unceasing anguish of the Egyptian slavery was that God has come down to the rescue. God comes to where the people of God were and are. Then and only then, in that context, I would say, does it make sense that God would and could go to prison. Thus the title of today's sermon. God comes to the two people who had been tortured and flogged, to those who in the eyes of the ones with cultural and political influence and power were clearly guilty because they were spotting some crazy message about Jewish Messiah, because in our Roman kind of prim and proper sensibilities, that is just kind of a weird religion. And you're actually stirred up kind of civil disturbance, so you need to be thrown into prison. And God comes to prison to these two people, namely Paul and Silas. Here we learn that God is someone who comes to where the people of God are, especially among those who are suffering, especially among those who are disenfranchised and marginalized, whether in Ukraine, whether in Northwest China, or whether here in the United States. Augustine, who's a fourth century North African Christian and bishop, he wrote these words. He said, Lord, you are the one Who is closer to me than I am to myself, that you know me far better than I can ever know myself, and you love me far more than I can ever dare to do so beyond my own self pity and self loathing. This God who is closer, this God who knows me better, this God who loves me more is the very one who goes to prison with me. So let's take a listen to Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy again. He says, The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe it is necessary to recognize that we all need mercy. We all need justice. And perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. Unmerited grace. So as I'm teaching this class uh, in, at Riverbend, uh, there have been a couple of hiccups. So one of the things that we, uh, so we're starting actually in person tomorrow. We've had to hold our class at Vanderbilt thus far, but so through this kind of ordeal, what some of the students have mentioned to me was really, really interesting and important, and I want to share it with you. A couple of students said, you know what? Through this kind of ordeal, I learned that, you know, we don't have a lot of control. I mean, the irony is that we're desperate to go to prison and they won't let us, right? And like, at least once a week. And, and because of all this kind of COVID protocol and other things. And we come to realize this, that you know what? Just when you think that you got everything under control, they are not under your control. Just when you think that you got everything. And, and we came to realize that, you know what? All of us really need that undeserved, kind of unmerited grace. That leads me to the second point. Why would God... Go to prison. How does God go to prison? God goes to prison with us and through us uh, in in God's spirit. Why would God do that, though? That is, go to prison. What gain could there be for God? It's not as if God is going to become more God by going to prison. Or by, you know, I mean, it's not that God will become more self-actualized or self-fulfilled by doing so. That wouldn't do anything to God, we conclude. What about to the people of God? Would that, would, would divine incarceration add anything to our understanding of an experience of God? What about to the watching world? I'll say more about that in a few minutes. But see, I didn't, it, it is one thing to say that God goes to prison with us and to express solidarity. Well, that could be actually kind of cold comfort. If somebody shows up and hangs with you for a couple of hours, but does nothing to mitigate the circumstance or change the environment, then you might say, what was that all about? And so we we do want to say, and we do believe that God does come to express solidarity, but also furthermore and more than that, to redeem the place by his presence. He redeems the presence, the place, wherever they are, the presence of our lives, figuratively and literally by God's Presence. I don't know about you, but COVID has brought us to moments of isolation, right? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I do and I don't like Zoom meetings. Because Zoom meetings, I mean, you can just, I mean, basically, you know, we learned a few tricks uh, with Zoom meetings, right? You can put the computer up there and you can have your phone down there and do your other things or have a couple of different screens on and you know how it is. Or you put a very, very kind of live, like real life kind of picture as your screen and then you just kind of, then people think you're there, but then you're doing other things. But you see, all of those things are laughably true. But this, I realized. In some ways, having Zoom meetings or living a Zoom life has further intensify the sense of isolation that people have. You're watching people from afar on the screen, and you're kind of here by yourself. Now, how do I know that? Well, because that's been my experience in some ways. I feel like, and that's why I've been so desperate, so excited that we're able to meet together, at least at church, in person here. We often feel alone and wondering, does anyone care? Or as Pink Floyd sang so powerfully in the song, Comfortably Numb, is there anybody in there? Just not if you can hear me. Is there anyone home? Come on now, I hear you are feeling down well. I can ease your pain, get you on your feet again, relax. I'll need some information first, just the basic facts. Can you show me where it hurts? If you know anything about Pink Floyd or this particular song, then it is a song about medication, self-medication, medication through drugs, and and, and use and over, overuse of, of it, overdose of it even. But you see, they were kind of getting at something really, really existentially crucial. Our sense of feeling isolated, our sense of feeling like we're alone and nobody is home, nobody cares, nobody gives a dang. See, this numbing and dulling our senses from this inescapably haunting conviction that we might be utterly alone is something that not only Pink Floyd sings about, but many of us, I would dare say most of us, I would even go further and say all of us share. This is more than just psychology, it requires the answer from history and theology, that is, from our God, who would go to prison with us. What do I mean by that? Let me try to unpack it this way. Friends, let's think about this. Very commonsensically, prisons are by definition not the kind of place for dignitaries and royalties to come, right? I mean, we might have, you know, our political dignitaries, whether President Biden or President Trump or President Obama or President Bush, visit prisons maybe for a couple of hours, but they don't go spend a night there, do they? And yet, and yet, your God, my God, that we worship today, right here, right now, has done exactly that. I have a lot of respect for other world religions, but there's something absolutely unique about Christianity, and you know what that is? God goes to prison. Did you hear that? So in Christianity, you can and in fact say that God incarnate in Jesus Christ spent one night behind bars in Roman world. Think, Think with me on this. Like, okay, Jesus is now tried based on these trumped up charges you think after he was sentenced to death you think that he was told hey go home tonight come back here by seven o'clock because we got some business to take care of no he was say you're gonna go spend the night in jail god could have done anything and everything in god's perfect wisdom and knowledge and yet when god chose a pathway for his son to visit here and for his son to experience death jesus did not die a natural death of dying at age 74. Jesus wasn't hit by a stray donkey in the streets of Jerusalem and died in an accidental death. No, Jesus died in a publicly displayed execution style. The, the whole thing of crucifixion, as you know, f- because we talk about this a lot from the pulpit, was a public display of Roman power and pomp. They were saying, we're going to show you what happens to any all of you if you dare come across our way. We're going to show you how powerful Rome is, and here is a display of how powerless you are. We're winners, you're losers, and you're on a cross, and we are not. God did not have to. God has no real reason. But what happens here is that why would God go to prison? It is one radical identification with the people of God who may feel alone and lost, and life isn't worth it. Furthermore, it is a radical redemption of the people of God. God Not only does God sympathize with our lost plight, but he comes to where we are, and he comes and by his visitation redeems the very place that God visits. Thirdly, not only is it identification and redemption, but also it is transformation for the witness of the glory of God's grace. God didn't have to, God had no real reason to, to lower himself like that, but God demonstrates God's true humility and God's true power in so doing, because that is what, how Christianity inverts our sense of power, our understanding of true uh, dignity, because God is the one who shows the glory of his being by going to prison with Paul and Silas, God is the one for whom the most definite display of His power was at the moment of auto betrayal and expiration of His physical death, at the moment of crucifixion. I want us to think about that. God, who could have done anything and everything God desired, God chose a pathway of death for His own and one own one and only begotten eternal Son. That death would be in a publicly displayed shameful one on the cross. That leads me to the third and the final point. Where can I meet this God who goes to prison? I mentioned to you earlier that what is absolutely unique about Christianity, not in a triumphalistic way, but in a just a comparative study way, like you cannot say that God would go to prison within Islam. That would be unthinkable, unacceptable. You cannot say that within Hinduism. You cannot say that within, within you know, uh, uh, Buddhism. You cannot say that in any other religion. But what Christianity humbly and yet confidently asserts, is that in Jesus Christ, God truly experiences human dereliction, desertion, damnation even, and death. And thus we can say we follow this one. So how would I, where can we find this one? Where can we meet this God? Is a very important existential question. And are you ready for the answer? Where can we meet this God who goes to prison? Are you looking at me? Look just a little below, right here in these, in front of you, in these tables. We, we do this every week, and this is not only a powerful reminder, but also a powerful reality that actually transports us from our lonely confines into a communal kind of togetherness. As we come together, what we are encountering, hopefully, is the living God who has been risen to life, but before that, his body was broken and blood was shed. Now let me ask you this. Let's, let's think about these words, body broken. Would you like to have your body broken? Would you like to? Would you like to experience some physical discomfort and pain? No. Would you like to have your blood shed? I don't think so, unless you're giving blood. So body-broken bloodshed to bespeak the reality of your God and my God. Where can we go to meet this God who will go to prison for us? Right here. And please remember these five words if you can. We eat, therefore we are. And I'm not just talking about, you know, pescatarians and vegans and omnivores and vegetarians. I'm talking about every one of us. We eat, therefore we are. What you eat has a direct consequence in the kind of person you will become. So it means this. We eat the body of Christ. We drink the body of blood of Jesus. And what happens is this actually radically reconstitutes, redefines our essence and our endeavors. That's what I would call the kind of Eucharistic reconstitution of our essence and our economy. Why is this so important? I think this right here, this Lord's Supper that we are about to receive in just hopefully in about three or five minutes, really redefines power, really kind of reshapes our understanding of glory, and really represents for us what we mean by good life. So many of us know that the book of Hebrews is probably the most radical book about discipleship. And also it is, uh, as the title indicates, it is written to a group of Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, who are now thinking, do we need to go back to the protected religion of Judaism, or do we go become even more vulnerable by following Jesus in this new way? Hebrews 12 has this to say. Hebrews was really committed to showing that the glory of God, the God of glory as shown on Mount Sinai, was awesome and awe-inspiring. Because Hebrews 12 talks about this awesome sight. The people are really afraid because mountains are literally shaking. And Moses was afraid. And every one of his compatriots and co religionists they were afraid. So this Mount Sinai was a display of, spectacular display of God's power. But the writer says, while that was and remains an awesome God's display, in God's perfect plan and equally perfect execution of that divine plan, God brought us from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. Mount Zion, that is where Christ's blood kind of pacifies and, and purifies all of us. So and, But furthermore, in Hebrews chapter 13, the writer says these words, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the city gate, bearing the disgrace he bore. Because we do not have an enduring city here, but we are looking for the city that is to come. The new city that they're looking forward to. And this is basically the new city catechism. This, in a nutshell, is a new city catechism. New city that is coming down, and so basically Jesus did not stay inside the city gate, he went outside the city gate. He experienced and embraced vulnerability and death. And the writer says, you know what? Let's do this radical discipleship. Let's go to Jesus outside the city gate because he will meet us there. He will embrace us there because the world may forsake and forget you, but that's maybe okay. They should be increasingly okay. It's a scary proposition, but Christ says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let us go to him outside the city gate because this radical discipleship is what we so desperately needed in the first century as we do in the 21st. Where can I find this God who goes to prison? Who is this God? That God is, as ironic, as, as incomprehensible as that might be, the one who experienced death, shame, betrayal, isolation, and yes, incarceration one night before he was put to death, namely Jesus. Where can we find this God? Right here, right in front of us. Let me remind you that unless we sanitize the kind of death of Jesus, he died a death of public execution. In the Jewish economy of justice, as Paul writes about it in Galatians, he was a curse. He was cursed because everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. In the Roman economy of justice, he was also cursed for everyone who was put on a spectacle of crucifixion suffered on the powerful demonstration of the fact that he was an ultimate loser and the powerless one. To this one who died as a powerless one, but raised to life and is living in our hearts today, I would urge you to come and surrender yourself. I want you to come and surrender yourself at this table, saying, Lord, here I am. You need Jesus, I need Jesus at my core and at our cores. Not just as a cultural palliative we need once a week, but as an hourly reminder of the one who goes to prison where you and I rightly deserve to be, and in fact are in every, in every way, and frees us from that. Christ's victory is a teaching of the early church that says Christ basically beat the power of sin, Satan, and our own self, so let's come to this table now. It is what I would call a table of indictment that tells us that no one can qualify oneself by their own merits, but also it's a table of invitation. Christ says, come all of you who are weary and heavy laden for I will give you rest. And also it is a table of immortal joy because Paul says we actually proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So let's go to prison. God is the one who would go to prison, who would visit the prison of our souls and says, you are free. I am with you. I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. So let's surrender ourselves as we come to the table right here and right now. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we worship a God who would go to prison. Thank you for those words. As we ponder that reality more and more, we often find ourselves incarcerated in our own cells of our own devising. We find ourselves utterly alone and alienated. Lord, you come and break us free from that sentence and cell. We thank you that you are ever near us and with us in Christ. And thank you for the reminder of your presence as we communicate with you in this most beautiful and sublime way of eating and drinking as a community, may you do that powerful work that which only you can do right here, right now. Thank you, in your name we pray, amen.